Dr. Dan Allender estimates that 50% of the women and 35% of the men in your church have experienced sexual abuse. April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month, and Dr. Allender is our guest this week talking about how we can be a part of helping sexual abuse recovery. It's all on episode 49 of the Church Leaders Podcast. Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast, where we're helping you lead better every day. And now here's your host, podcasting from scenic Colorado Springs, Colorado, Andrew Hess. Thanks for tuning in to episode 49 of the Church Leaders Podcast. I'm Andrew Hess, your host, and this week, our guest is Dr. Dan Allender. Dr. Allender is the professor of counseling at the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology. He has an MDiv from Westminster Theological Seminary and a PhD in counseling psychology from Michigan State. He travels and speaks extensively, teaching on sexual abuse recovery, forgiveness, and worship. Dr. Allender is well known for his excellent book, Healing the Wounded Heart. And now, here's my conversation with Dr. Dan Allender. Well, Dr. Dan Allender, thank you so much for being a part of the Church Leaders Podcast. Andrew, a privilege to be with you. We wanted to talk to you about um, your new book, uh, Healing the Wounded Heart. But in order to talk about that book, we have to go back to uh, 1989. Uh, You released a book, The Wounded Heart. And uh, tell us about that book and how um, your life has been affected by the success and interest in that book. Well, uh, it was my first book, and I was told by a publisher uh, that no one would buy it off of a shelf, uh, that we would likely have to sell it uh, by literally covering it uh, in a brown paper bag. I, I, I can't even believe that, in fact, it was stated that way. But uh, back in the late 80s, uh, the topic of sexual abuse was so off limits, so, so profoundly off limits that it was a forbidden topic, but certainly in the last 25 years. And what I wanted to do with this new book was not revise the wounded heart, but simply begin with that question of what have I learned, what have I addressed and dealt with in my own and other lives, that 25 years allows a certain perspective or retrospective that allowed me to jump into that labor of going. Things have changed. We live in a different day. We certainly have learned many things about the nature of the human heart, the mind, the body, uh, that required uh, a kind of rewriting of that book. And what are some of those, the the main um, attitude changes that you've seen in the last 25 years um, towards sexuality in in our culture? Well, let's just say, first of all, uh, we all know that we live in a sexually mad world, and in some ways, a sexually violent world. The reality of abuse, the harm, uh, particularly against uh, children, the amazing piece of data is we have seen uh, enough research has come in to say we've probably seen a 20 to 30 percent drop uh, in the level of abuse, sexual abuse of children. And that's stunningly good. Just one of those moments of going our proactive engagement with abuse, naming it, uh, celebrities to common folks naming the reality of their own past abuse has had, let's just say for the moment, has had some clear cultural change. The dilemma is we've actually seen greater abuse among adolescents, young adults, everything from sexting to increase of pornography to the hookup culture. There has been a greater uh, level of harm of older children and what I would call a growing sense of indifference, a, a kind of, oh, it's not that big of a deal. All right, so I was date raped when I was 14, 
but I got over it. A kind of, if it was in the 80s, a sense of shock and shame, today it's almost boredom and indifference. Mm-hmm. And in, during, during that same time, what have you seen in terms of the the pastor or ministry leader's response to that? Uh, I think pastors minister when these things happen. How have you seen churches shift in the way that they minister to those who, who have gone this, undergone this? Well, I, I think it's a better day. I, I think we're, uh, the publisher was basically saying, we're going to publish this, but we really don't expect more than four, three or 4,000 copies to be sold. And, you know, the, the Wounded Heart sold about a half million copies. So it's only one small portion of the larger uh, acclimatization to we live in a sexually violent world uh, where more than mere immorality occurs. There really are profound sexual marrings that occur, and it can't be ignored. Lord. So, yes, a great portion of the believing community still won't deal with sexuality, won't deal with sexual harm. But I do find among far more than there would have been 25 years ago, a willingness to say we live in a fallen world where harm will occur that creates trauma. And that trauma is not going to go away by merely praying for someone or or showing support and believing in their story. You've got to engage the human heart in the harm in order to have hope truly of healing. And so I think there has been a far greater movement. Now, comparatively, I don't even know how to create statistics about this. Uh, I would still say that majority of churches, you're not going to hear a sermon on this. You're not going to hear a pastor name the reality that there are probably up to 50-some percent of the women in the congregation with a history of past abuse and probably around 30-35% of men. I still feel like we've got so far to go, but certainly since the 80s, uh, I'm deeply encouraged. Yeah, and one of the things that I know you've talked about is that a lot of times when this happens, people don't talk about it. It becomes a secret of their lives. And why do you think it is important for people to talk about this type of stuff to, as they work through it? Well, let's just say the scriptures, Old New Testament, address shame profoundly. I mean, from the very beginning of scripture, you've got one of the last sentences uh, in the scripture of, of a non-fallen world being, and they were naked, and they knew no shame. In some ways, what you can see the trajectory of Scripture addressing is the consequences of unaddressed shame. Uh, Literally, Genesis 4, murder. Uh, Literally, the trajectory between 4 and and 11, uh, the consequences of violence, of brokenness, of harm, murder, and lust. So if we're actually grappling with the Scriptures, as Jesus talks about sin, he talks about lust and anger as adultery and murder. Uh, And is that concrete, literal adultery? Of course. Concrete, literal murder, of course. But he's talking about the human heart where many will not commit adultery and won't commit murder. But he's still saying the reality is you've got to deal with the issues of lust and anger in order to, in one sense, prize the work of redemption, but also be engaged in the work of sanctification. So our task is we've got to grapple with the intersection of lust and anger, and ultimately that's the realm of shame. 
Mm-hmm. So if we're not dealing with shame, we're not dealing with the human heart. And one of the works of evil that I believe is both intended and utterly, obviously, dark uh, is to shame a heart and therefore silence it and therefore keep the secrets bound into a kind of isolation where they can never see the air of day, the light of day, and the kindness of Jesus for that true work of healing. So we will, I mean, in a whole other field, uh, you've got this uh, 12-step statement, and that is, we are as sick as our secrets. And it's a beautifully true statement. Uh, If we're not willing to grapple with where we've been silenced through shame, you can't hope for redemption in what you have not named. And that freedom to name the reality, not just I was abused, but to enter the story and its implications is part of the work of redemption. Mm -hmm. And I think that that brings up for a lot of leaders that leaders need to be on the watch in their congregations. You know, there's going to be a lot of parents in this, uh, in our audience listening to this podcast. As they're listening um, and they're thinking about people in their life who um, you know, might have been abused. What are some of those signs that they can watch for um, to try to get people the help they need? Well, I, I start with uh, this core assumption that that evil is a thief, it is a murderer, uh, and and it is a destroyer, one who mars. So right there, you've got three categories that diagnostically we need to be able to utilize, and that is evil's constantly working to ruin innocence. So where you find a cynical person, uh, kind of angry and detached, that's a person whose life has been thieved, stolen. Uh, when you find a person who's really struggling with hope, they, they've, they've had the evil one come and not literally kill them, but stolen and therefore killed something of their hope, that you've got categories right in front of you. This person never seems to have, I don't mean being positive or optimistic. I'm talking about the capacity to dream on behalf of others' goodness. Uh, So you've got that cynical and somewhat isolated. You've got a person whose life does not bear a kind of momentum of redemptive hope for themselves and others. But probably back to this core issue, and that is shame always comes with contempt. And, And our primary means by which we clothe ourselves, apart from Jesus, clothe ourselves to cover shame is through self-contempt or other-centered contempt. So we live in a culture uh, that is so contemptuous. The political debates are full of contempt and judgment of others with just outright uh, outlandish cruelty. Um, When you see people who are given to that kind of dogmatism, a turn against others, judgment of others, judgment of themselves, where they live, in some sense, ensconced in the realm of accusation against others or against themselves, that's signatures of significant contempt. Where there's contempt, I promise you, like smoke, fire, where there's contempt, there's shame. And the greater the shame, more than likely uh, the reality that there is the presence of an unaddressed or many unaddressed stories of shame. Yeah, and I I think that for a lot of people in our audience, you know, they're pastors, they're ministry leaders, I think that a lot of times we feel very ill-equipped to to help people with things of this magnitude. What can um, you know a trusted leader in somebody's life do, and what should they leave to you know a professional counselor or somebody who who is more of an expert? 
Well, let, let's just go to some of the research, and that is generally, even with marriage conflicts, but almost all uh, uh, people who eventually see a therapist, the problem that they perceive they have that brought them into seeing a professional counselor, they've talked to three other people about before they get to that therapist. And it generally takes 18 months of suffering before they ever come to see a therapist. So it's really imperative. I, I hope men and women hear this really clearly. Even if you don't know what you're doing, even if you're not well-trained, one of the worst things you can do when you're working, now let me change the topic. Uh, if you're interacting with your own adolescent son or daughter and you're over your head, the worst thing you can do is to back away. Uh, and that's the same with regard to someone's story of abuse or harm. You may not know what to do, but at least don't quit. Don't back away and don't defer. You can refer, but don't defer. And that is just by saying, I want to take your story seriously. I don't know. I'm not well trained here, but I want you to know I believe you and I want you to have my support, the church's support, to engage this story and not let it fade away. How can I support you to step into this story, to go further into this story than what you've already begun to offer? So inviting a person to name what is true, honor what is true, and then step them toward the process with a kind of hand on their shoulder that says, look, you're going to want to quit. You're not going to want to do the work, but I can't make you do it. But I want you to know my hand will be on your shoulder supporting you toward that. And when you want to run or when you want to quit, I can't keep you from it. But at least I can say, oh, I beg of you. I will pray with you to stay in it. Now, obviously, this is not a topic like brain surgery where you go, no, I'm sorry. I don't want anyone. I don't even want a physician who's been through medical school unless they've been trained in this area. I don't want anyone to be doing brain surgery unless they've been properly trained. But this isn't brain surgery. This is where you can read. You need more data. You need to begin to see this is not just a psychological issue. This is a spiritual issue that involves the kingdom of darkness. And if that's not your realm to be engaging people who have been harmed by the kingdom of darkness, then I, I don't know what to say. Like, what are you doing? Mm -hmm. And I do think that a lot of people that have undergone abuse, there are barriers that keep them from seeking help and getting the help that they desire. You've talked about shame being, being a major one. Are there some other barriers that, that kind of keep people from seeking the healing that they want? Right. Well, of course, especially if it's incest uh, and therefore involves a family member, th there's always the fear that this is going to disrupt the family. I even if it was a stranger or a neighbor or a teacher, um, it still involves the family in terms of their failure to engage the, the harm then and, and even now. So there are always implications from shame to the implication of disruption uh, of our lives. 
And that's where, as a good friend and as a pastor, I think you can name that for people. There are many things, shame being the first, but the fear of what do I do with the abuser? What do I do with my family that, that could and should have known? What do I do now with my spouse uh, and the reality of what they're going to feel toward me? And if there have been sexual struggles, which likely there have been in marriage, I, it just feels so easy to just go, oh, just press on to the high mark of maturity in Christ and let's forget about this stuff. And yet the reality is, you think cancer goes away because you wish it to or because you prayed about it? Uh, the answer is possible, but not likely. Let's engage what indeed evil does not want you to name and now open the possibility that the Spirit of God, through good care in the context of the body, good care with regard to the presence of a, a, a well-trained guide to engage these issues, that, that redemption's really not only possible, it's, it's virtually assured, but you must engage the process. Mm -hmm. And as Christians, we do, we believe that there, there is an evil, there's an enemy who, who works against us. Talk about kind of the strategies of, of the devil after something like this happens. What, what is the enemy trying to do um, you know, to keep us from redemption? Well, I think, uh, again, we put just a few sentences, let me add a few more. Uh, that isolation, uh, you know, shame isolating. Now you've been silenced, and those secrets then bind your heart to a sense of there's something very dark and ugly, something disgusting, revulsive about me. If we can just put this so simply, when your body's touched, whether you want to be touched or not, your body will respond. So if primary, secondary sexual body parts are are touched in the process of abuse, there will be some level of arousal. Maybe not much pleasure, but you will know sensations that are arousing, and sometimes pleasure, even sometimes to a point of an orgasm. So you have to hear that a 8-year-old, 12-year-old, 14-year-old whose body responds to touch, even in a groomed and uh, a threatening relationship, still has to bear, what did my body do? And that, 20, 30 years later, after the accumulation of judgment and shame, well, oftentimes, uh, evil is coming into our world with accusations. Uh, it, you enjoyed it. You could have stopped it. You're actually partially responsible for this. Those accusations are outright hideous lies. Nonetheless, uh, the fact that my body responds seems to actually validate uh, evil's accusations. And often, we make of a vow, uh, a kind of, uh, of statement of faith, and that is, uh, I'm evil, uh, my body is bad, I'm dangerous to others. And those vows literally become formally a way in which we shape and reshape our sense of identity in the world. So when you've got accusations and vows working, uh, I think the hardest word to say is we, we come to curse ourselves. We actually uh, got seduced into joining evil's curse against the glory of the human body, against the glory of our, our sexuality, against the glory of intimacy. And when evil has brought us to that level of cursing, sometimes unwitting or unconscious and sometimes quite uh, conscious uh, and violent, when those judgments have come into that level of curse, I, I don't honestly understand what happens in the spiritual realm when evil has brought you to join a curse. 
I simply know it brings great harm. And that reversal of being able to come to grieve on behalf of that eight-year-old, 12-year-old, 14-year-old boy or girl, um, to be able to suffer with what they suffered, to honor the tears of Jesus with regard to that broken part of you, and being able to stand righteously on their behalf, to be angry on their behalf. That grief and anger brought together often begins to allow the human heart to truly repent, not of the abuse, because you never repent of the abuse, but you can now begin to repent that you have come to believe those accusations, that you've made those vows, that you joined the curse against your own sexuality and body. And all I can tell you is it's not simple. It's not straightforward. It's not linear. It's certainly not quick. But incredible change is possible when we begin to join God's blessing of our very being and our our young parts, as well as our own body and sexuality, incredible change can occur. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the process of healing a bit. You know, um, you know, what are some of those things as you're working towards recovery with someone? What are those markers of healing um, that you're kind of um, working towards? That you're you're kind of helping people get towards? Well, part of it is honesty and, and simply telling the truth. I don't care how. Um, Simple that may sound, there is a kind of uh, elegance to it in terms of you've told me about the nature of your own father's refusal to engage you. Well, no wonder he didn't see the abuse because he's not there. No wonder he doesn't want to deal with the abuse because he doesn't like to be brought into anything that he can't handle. So let's name your father was more... Uh, He wasn't your abuser, but he was more than just distant and uh, disengaged. He was actually a coward who refused to enter what it means to live in a fallen world. Let's tell the truth about our world. Let's not generate a kind of illusion or detached engagement, because the incarnation requires we be enfleshed in the real world. So that grooming that went on prior to the abuse. There's a lot of storytelling and also structures by which we've learned to mitigate the truth, to to mollify it so that we don't have to face the nature of our own mother, our own father, our our own teachers, uh, the world that allowed this abuse to go on without being addressed. And I can't tell you how many, I mean, literally thousands of people I've worked with over 25 years who have told me stories of clear harm that parents should have addressed with this phrase, oh, but they didn't know. And they literally may not have known, but they had data of a traumatized child because you can't be abused without being traumatized. Uh, And that question of, well, what are you doing with the clear evidence of trauma in this child that you somehow ignored and then often Adults will say, well, I was a good actor. Really? Uh, Hollywood-level Oscar-winning? No. Eight-year-olds, 12-year-olds, 14-year-olds can't hide the cortisol uh, that pulses through the body when you've gone through something as profoundly stressful. So even the efforts that we make to hide the abuse uh, require that we engage why our own world around us failed to protect or believe us. So part of that is storytelling where we move closer to the truth and where we begin to face why 
we don't want to name the truth. That's certainly one of the most major steps for the process of unearthing shame and unearthing the work of evil uh, as to what it's working to accomplish through the abuse. Another thing, um, you know, as someone has been abused and is walking towards recovery, how can someone who has gone through this kind of use um, that terrible experience to help others who may have gone through that? Have you found that um, in your own, you know, in your own practice that um, that a lot of people that have gone through this are able then to uh, minister to others who have gone through something similar? Oh, Andrew, countless stories. Oh, just it, it, it makes my heart just delight to to talk about how many people who have thought their life had very little value, uh, almost no real hope of in this world, uh, redemption and joy, beginning to know freedom uh, in a way in which their heart's invitation to engage the horror of their story has actually brought them more hope than they ever had in their life. You know, so often we think if we enter the darkest parts of the world or of our own life, that we're going to be consumed at some level destroyed. And even if that language sounds initially hyperbolic, the reality is that's what people feel. But when they find that they have walked through the valley of the shadow of death, they actually find that Jesus met them in uniquely profound ways. And that kind of, look, if I, a man like me or a woman like you, can know both freedom and hope and joy and a sense of reclaiming and restoration, who wouldn't and couldn't? So I think there's almost a fire in the belly that begins to burn on behalf of not only your own life, but others, that creates both the impetus to engage good for others, but also, and this can be very disconcerting for some, uh, less willingness to pretend that things are just fine. So uh, you find that there's a kind of prophetic voice that begins to rise with those who have been living in some sense of the word, a deceitful, self-lying life, not wanting to engage the truth, that now when they find they can do so, they also want to invite others to begin to enter truth-telling. So it does generate, shall we say, a profound ministry focus on behalf of others. And I love that idea of, of hope and that there is hope, because I, I, I think a lot of people who have gone through something like this probably feel very hopeless, uh, especially in those, you know, kind of initial, you know, days and weeks and months. Um, can you talk about that, that importance that people understand that there is hope, that, that God w- does restore, and, and just kind of the hope that, that they can have? Well, first of all, I don't think hope has anything to do with optimism. I don't think it's having a positive worldview or, or, you know, being able to look to the future and say it's all going to work out. You know, true biblical hope is the capacity to dream good on behalf of others and to endure uh, very deep suffering uh, on a day-to-day basis to see redemption occur for yourself and for others. So that level of perseverance, that's a core to hope. Willingness to take risk, that's core to hope. And a willingness to know, I'm going to die. I mean, it's not only not going to get better, I'm going to die. But in that, 
there is a redemption, even in and through my death, that I long for for myself and for others. So that kind of hope that has boldness, passion, and a kind of freedom to be willing to fail, to suffer, to persevere, that's the kind of almost warrior hope. Uh, This isn't just light little optimism that you write a Hallmark card about. Uh, This is a warrior optimism that says, in some sense of the phrase, as the old uh, supposedly Apache aphorism was, today's a good day to die. I'm willing to die today, but if the Lord allows me to live, then I want to allow this day to be one in which I do more harm to evil and I have more of a sense of the glory of being able to grow his goodness uh, with my own and other hearts. So that kind of, uh, I have a sword in my hand, and I'm meant to go into the kingdom portion of the world that God has given me to address evil, but also to grow glory. I can't think of anything, frankly, I know what a strange word this must sound, but I can't think of anything more fun on earth to do than to put my foot on the neck of evil and simultaneously grow the fruit of the glory of God on this earth. So that level of hope is the very thing that I think gets generated as those who are no longer bound by shame have begun to taste something of the sweet kindness of Jesus and open the door uh, to what repentance brings. Uh, You know, when you go back to this phrase uh, in Romans uh, 2 verse 4, do you not know that it is the kindness of God that leads to repentance? That's what the work of hope brings And that is more repentance and therefore more of a taste of kindness. Well, Dr. Allender, such such great wisdom. And I think so many people in our audience are going to be helped by the wisdom that you've shared. Um, It is something that uh, more and more pastors are are having to minister into. And uh, I think you offered uh, great there at the end. uh, The the idea is that there is hope, that Jesus died to restore our broken hearts. And so thank you so much for being with us. And I really appreciate it. Thank you, Andrew. My privilege. Thanks to Dr. Dan Allender for joining us this week as our special guest on the Church Leaders Podcast. It was a great episode, and if you enjoyed it, would you help us by taking a few minutes to subscribe, rate, and review us in iTunes? And also, send this episode to someone that you know that may be dealing with some of the issues that came up in this conversation. Make sure to download the show notes for this episode at churchleaders.com forward slash podcast The show notes always include resources that we mention in the show and links to some of our guests' top content on churchleaders.com. As always, if you have ideas for how we can improve the podcast or guests that we should talk to, you can email me directly at podcast at churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again next week. You've been listening to the Church Leaders Podcast. For articles, videos, and free resources that will help you lead better every day, visit our website, churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.